You work all day, then go home and make dinner. That's not fair, because making your dinner, that's our job. We don't work all day, then go home and do your job, so stop doing ours. Head into Buffalo Wild Wings for America's favorite wings, shareables, burgers, and more. Choose from 21 signature sauces and seasonings to take your dinner from mild to wild. But don't worry, we're dinner pros. If things get too wild, we've got dozens of beers on tap and a full bar to bail out your palate. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the uh, World Goodwill Symposium. For those of you who are here for the first time, this is an annual event that we've been holding uh, for many years now in conjunction with our headquarters in London and Geneva as well. And the purpose of it is always to focus on the spiritual energy of goodwill as a conditioning force in world betterment and for the resolution of human problems. World Goodwill was established in 1932, I think, by Alice and Foster Bailey to mobilize the energy of goodwill. We're registered with the United Nations Department of Public Information as an NGO. There's a definite spiritual basis to world goodwill, which I'm sure you can sense, but we are not affiliated with any religion not an organized religion or a disorganized religion. <laughs> we have co-workers throughout the world coming from many different cultures, many different spiritual traditions, and I would bet that we have more than a few agnostics in our midst and maybe a few atheists who are drawn to the idea of goodwill. If you have noticed, we often emphasize meditation in our meetings, and we'll be holding two meditations this afternoon. We refer to the Christ, and I should explain for those of you who might not know, we're not really thinking of the Master Jesus so much as Christ, the world teacher, the figure that is expected by many of the world's religious traditions, the Buddhists who expect the Maitreya, the Hindus who look for the Kalki avatar, the Jewish people who look for the Messiah. We are all looking for the same entity, I think. And in fact, it's interesting, Christ comes from the Greek Christos, meaning anointed one, and Messiah comes from the Hebrew, which means anointed one. So there we are. Perhaps the best definition of the spiritual basis of goodwill was given us by Alice Bailey. She said, goodwill is man's first attempt to express the love of God. Its practical expression of divine love as it demonstrates on earth, and that is through right relationships between individuals, between groups, between nations, and between the kingdoms of the planet. All should be in right relationship, and that is established through the energy of goodwill. The theme of our work this year is igniting the will to good in a time of decision. And our work this year, as we all are too aware, takes place after a tumultuous year of change and upheaval in terms of the economic crisis and the political changes. I think there's a widespread sense that this is a time of real significant change with long-term consequences, that we've reached a decisive point in human history. Increasingly, we see international conferences that are being held to address the major world problems. 
it's also at the same time uh, a growing phenomenon of grassroots initiatives that are recognized as powerful forces for change. The question is, what part can goodwill play in all of this? How can the will to good, which is the good of the whole, be brought to bear on the decisions that humanity must make? How can that powerful spiritual energy be awakened in human hearts and minds? Well, goodwill is a creative and powerful energy, but it has to be mobilized in human hearts and minds. It has to become a practical force for change and world betterment, and that will be the focus of our work today, igniting the will to good. Through our talks, our group discussions, and our meditation work, that will be our endeavor. We have invited guest speakers from two different organizations, the Search for Common Ground and from We the World. But to begin with, Dale McKechnie from World Goodwill Headquarters is going to be setting, I guess we could call it the keynote of the afternoon, speaking on the will to good, the magnetic seed of the future. Well, thank you, Sarah. We, members of the human kingdom, have an extremely important task ahead of us, not just today, but for many decades and even centuries to come. Essentially, this task involves defining and then expressing two divine qualities. First, the loving energy of goodwill, and second, the very potent power of the will to good. They're not the same. They are two polarities, if you will, two expressions of a single flow of divine energy. Essentially, altogether, they are the quality of love, divine love. Now, how do these two polarities, expressions, how are the expressions of divine love? Most of you are familiar with the keynote of World Goodwill, Goodwill is love in action, and that's exactly what it is, an active, physical plane expression of a divine quality. The way human beings express goodwill today is about the best that can be expected, given our present evolutionary stage of development, and showing goodwill to others has been an objective for humanity for over 2,000 years. Since it was exclaimed at the birth of Christ, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It's only in recent times that the idea of expressing and using goodwill has seeped through into human consciousness and is now very much in the forefront of human intentions. In fact, after centuries of warfare and endless conflicts, we are now at a point of realizing that applying goodwill where conflict arises or where there is an acute humanitarian need is the only acceptable approach. It works where other approaches have failed. Goodwill is the touchstone that will transform the world is another familiar quotation, another keynote. A touchstone is a black, silicious stone used to test the purity of gold and silver 
by the streak left on the stone when rubbed by the metal. In other words, it's a test by which to determine a particular quality or purity. So the energy of goodwill, being a touchstone, might be seen as a standard by which other approaches can be measured. Goodwill, when applied with loving intent, can build relationships where other approaches have failed to create binding relations that last. Where the energy of goodwill has replaced selfishness, then a new note is sounded, a note that evokes and draws out the higher qualities of the soul. And where the soul controls, you have the striving for oneness and wholeness and a willingness to cooperate. You only have to look behind many of the events of the day to see how this loving, cooperative spirit is already transforming the world. We see it in the formation of the United Nations and in the extensive service work it performs throughout the world. We see goodwill underlying the forming of the many world trade agreements and in the cooperative efforts to counteract global warming we see it working through organizations like the Peace Corps and Save the Children and hundreds of others that are concerned for the plight of human beings in need. This use of active goodwill is rapidly laying the firm foundation on which to build a universal expression of divine love in the future. Now, the driving force behind these cooperative efforts is, of course, the power of human will. It is the hidden dynamic force. Actually, it is a power given to us by God, by way of the will of the soul, the power of free will, a power to use as we choose. So how often do we hear that what is needed for a piece of necessary legislation, for example, to pass is the power of political will. And what is required is usually the will to overcome an opposing force of some special interest. We're seeing especially through the legislative process just how strong and forceful the human will can be. And by this dynamic power of will comes through us as a power that can be used either negatively or positively. It's a power that will energize the good as well as the bad, the selfish or the unselfish. And how this power is applied depends on the individual's life focus. Whether he is sensitive to the loving qualities of the soul or whether he is driven by selfish personal ambition and personal desire. In each case, the force of the human will becomes strengthened and enhances either the individual selfishness and greed or loving intention. So to really understand the nature of the divine will to good, we have to look beyond the individual expression of the will to the greater plan of God, working out through the planet as a whole. It is the intention of the deity of this planet to eventually express a high degree of divine light and love upon this earth 
through the willing cooperation of humanity. It is within the life of this deity that we live and move and have our being. As with his, as with this deity, we too are bound by the evolutionary laws of the universe, which work for all eternity toward the good of the whole, and nothing can stop this from ever happening. The laws of evolution are moving us in this direction, and the good of the whole will eventually work out on earth. This is the basis for the divine will to good. It is the universal power of will that we seek to ignite, ignite in the keynote of this symposium, igniting the universal will to good in a time of decision. The decisions that human beings choose to make, for we do have a choice, will determine whether we have the vision and the willingness to work for a universal good, or whether we choose to oppose this universal objective and follow the more selfish path of greed, separateness, and personal ambition. It is only by following these two extremes that we eventually will find and choose a more middle path, a path of liberation from the bondage of material living altogether. A growing sensitivity to the potent energy of the will to good will gradually diminish the power of the individual will. The little will will yield its power to the soul and direct its efforts toward the universal objectives of the plan of God. In this way, the effects and evidence of the will to good will be seen in the universal orientation which humanity is now taking. So we might think for a moment about the word orientation. It describes the characteristics of the dynamic power of the will to good to reorient or redirect human creative thinking in a new direction. That new direction is simply a new way of thinking about the right use of material substance, the substance and dense matter of the material world. Right now, humanity is quite imprisoned by the dense power of materialism. We hold on to it and manipulate it, as with money, for personal gain and personal happiness, and we call this freedom. But we are not really free as long as the attractive power of materialism draws us in and holds our focus in this three-dimensional state of existence. This is, at present, our basic reality, though. Unfortunately, that is the illusion created by the material forces. And this is why humanity, humanity's focus of consciousness needs a new orientation, one that lies beyond the three-dimensional realm. And this is where the power of the will to good comes into play. The will to good essentially describes the divine intent of our planetary creator. What is working out through his creation, the greater purpose of life on planet Earth, is deemed to be good. It is good because the plan is intended to manifest eventually a demonstration of the radiant power of divine light and love. 
But to do this, the Creator needs the great sacrificial service of the souls of the human kingdom. He needs humanity to be the expression on earth of divine light and love. Light and love must come through us unimpeded, and this requires a huge cooperative effort between humanity and God. Now the divine will, energy of will, which is working to manifest the good, is essentially the electrical power of life itself. It cannot safely come in a direct contact with a little human will until human beings can demonstrate that they can work in a cooperative group effort. In such a group effort, the dynamic power of the greater will can be distributed safely. It then stimulates the group will to work toward a higher spiritual goal. The divine will to good thus serves to reorient the creative focus of the group in alignment with the spiritual intention of the creator of planet Earth. It's imperative, then, that a solid foundation of goodwill, the lower expression of the will to good, be established in human consciousness. It is a foundation on which we can build a vibrant, light-filled future civilization. The goodwill work that we are discussing here today is solid evidence that many in the human kingdom already sense and are responding to this new spiritual orientation. But we need to persist ever more forcefully in igniting this divine power and use it to evoke and radiate the divine light and love of the soul throughout the world. Thank you. Thank you, Dale. Well, now it's our pleasure to hear from uh, two of our guest speakers who come to us from Washington. Search for Common Ground is their work, and John Marks and Susan Collin Marks are going to speak to us on um, the theme today. Let me just say a few words, even though John told me I shouldn't, I'm going to, about their background. John Marks is president and founder of Search for Common Ground, which is an international conflict prevention NGO headquartered in Washington, D.C. and Brussels, as well as with offices in 18 countries. He also founded and heads Common Ground Productions, which produces radio and television programming around the world to help prevent and transform conflict. He wrote and produced the Shape of the Future series of television documentaries, which was aired simultaneously on Israeli, Palestinian, and Arab satellite television, which was something that had never been done before. Susan Collin Marks is season, Senior Vice President of Search for Common Ground. She's a South African who served as a peacemaker and peace builder during uh, South Africa's transition from apartheid to democracy. And she wrote a book, Watching the Wind, Conflict Resolution During South Africa's Transition to Democracy. Among many other things, she's founding editor of Track 2, which is a quarterly publication on community and political conflict resolution. 
She speaks and teaches and coaches and writes on peace processes and conflict resolution programs and holds a vision of a world of peace and dignity for all. And she believes our common humanity binds us together more than our differences divide us, which I think we would all agree with too. And they are going to be speaking on overcoming conflict through the universal will to good with some time for questions and answers from all of you before they conclude. So please welcome them. Is this mic on? Yes. It is on. Can you hear me? Very good. If you can't hear us at any point, please do say so. Good afternoon. Hello to all of you and thank you so much Sarah and Dale for this welcome, for inviting us here. Um, this is really our pleasure. Uh, we're going to be uh, showing you some videos, telling you some stories and bringing you into our world of uh, that we have the... Uh, is it not working? All right. Is that better? Um, into our world of working around the world to transform the way the world deals with conflict from an adversarial mode to constructive engagement. And the, the, um, uh, we have offices in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, in Eastern Europe, and we work also in our own backyard here in the United States of America. Um, and I can say our own backyard because last year I became an American citizen. So, <laughs> I will get good smiles from Americans about this, uh, and it feels very welcoming, so thank you. Um, we are going to um, take you on a bit of a world tour. Uh, before we do that, a couple of things that I would like to say about how we do our work in the world. We think of this work as societal conflict transformation, or societal reconciliation, or societal healing. And for me, the heart of this work is healing. And healing in the sense of the word, which is to make whole. And whenever I draw anything to do with our work, it's always a circle, which is, of course, the symbol of wholeness, and for me represents um, everything that this is about, this sense of our wholeness, of all of us moving towards wholeness in what I believe is a self-healing universe. Another way, I think, of saying what Dale and Sarah have been saying. So. We believe uh, that it's possible to uh, bring uh, mechanisms of media, um, of sports, uh, to work through the communities, to work through governments, to work through international agencies, to work with just about anything and everything, to transform the present way uh, that most conflicts are resolved in this world, which is through violence, whether it's the violence that we see on our television screens when we look around the world, or it's the more emotional um, violence and the violence of, of negativity that we see in other places. To me, there is a deep connection. Um, so let me, let's, let's just start and plunge into the story of what's possible when we seek to make, give the world a different kind of underpinning, an underpinning which is rooted in our mutual respect, in problem solving, and in nonviolence. What we've both experienced is the impact of violent conflict in our world. 
And what we've seen in, in the places we work, which are some of the most violent places on the planet, what we've seen is that violent conflict destroys everything. It destroys lives and livelihoods. It destroys human rights, the environment, the economy, health, education, hopes and dreams. It destroys everything in its path. And so what we understand and what our piece of the work of the world is as we with others serve in this world is that to allow those pieces to flourish, we need to find another way to deal with our conflicts so that we can have right livelihood, so that we can have health, so that we can have education, so we can have loving communities. And we're going to start in the Middle East. I would define the work who we are as applied visionaries. Uh, being a pure visionary is quite useful if you want to start a new religion or you want to have a, a philosophical treatise on something, but we try to do the kind of work um, that I think all of you support in your hearts and your heads. We try to do it actually in the world, and we are pretty good at finding ways to apply the kind of treatise um, premises that I think all of the people in this room share um, to the world outside there. Um, so in the Middle East, um, we've, we've actually as an organization been working in the Middle East for the last 16, 17 years. Uh, but what spurred Susan and me into action actually was something which you as New Yorkers can all appreciate. And incidentally, I'm from over there. I'm from northern New Jersey. You might have heard that I don't have to share the accent with my wife. And, uh, I'm a South Orange boy. Jersey boy, I believe, is the way they call it on Broadway these days, which we just saw the other night. And um, as a Jersey boy, I was very moved, by, like all of you were, by what happened at 9-11. Um, and our reaction to it, sort of like moths going closer to the conflict, perhaps, uh, Susan and I decided to move to Jerusalem. Um, it wasn't the way the traffic was going at the time, uh, but we saw the Middle East conflict, the conflict that centers around Jerusalem as the core conflict in the world, the one that seemed to have the possibility of igniting all the other conflicts. There's certainly places where people, more people are dying, where there's more violence and the like, but the one that seems to really be at the core of it, um, and the one that we've been working on the longest, is the Middle East conflict. So we moved to Jerusalem for, the, for two years and um, headed up the Search for Common Ground office in Jerusalem. Um, and we did a lot of work out there. And was, as was mentioned in the introduction, um, one thing we did is we produced a series of documentary films which um, was about how the conflict could possibly be resolved. Most people don't think it's possible to resolve the conflict in the Middle East. In fact, this week I may be having my doubts, let me just say, I don't mean to say, sit up here as a bright-eyed, shiny optimist. But I do think it can be resolved. All conflicts can be resolved. Human beings start conflicts, human beings can end conflicts. I really do believe that. I make light of it, but I really, really do believe that deep down. And so what I set out to do, um, and this was actually an individual effort, was to produce a series of, of documentaries on how the conflict in the Middle East could be resolved. And we chose the various um, aspects of the conflict between Palestinians and Israelis. 
settlements, refugees, Jerusalem, and security, and made a separate documentary on each one, and tried to give voice to the sentiments of how it really could be resolved using real people and real incidents. So that, and as also was mentioned, it was the first time that anything has ever been shown simultaneously on Israeli and Palestinian TV, which I want to say was a negotiation that probably took me no more than a year. I mean, you think it's difficult to negotiate peace among statespeople, try it among television broadcasters and the like, but uh, I'm not going there for now. But we did a mu the music in these documentaries was very important. I mean, music's always important in documentaries. And I wanted something that reflected both sides. And I figured the musicians had to come from both sides. And we got David Broza, who many people call the Sting of Israel, and a group called Sabrine, which is a very popular Palestinian group. And they put together um, the music. They wrote the music together and the like. And then about six months into the venture, we asked them to do a song which was a lot of, it was a pretty hard negotiation too because it meant performing together and they weren't sure they wanted to do that because there were a, a lot of things could happen to you if you get involved with people from the other side over there. But finally, they were convinced to do that. So what's happened is the series showed my intention certainly was to have it make peace in the region. Didn't quite get up to that level because it was done four or five years ago and the, the Middle East seems to be not more peaceful than it was, but au contraire. But what, but what it did do was showed some possibilities. Our work is to keep hope alive. Our work is to show those possibilities and even to push over the limits and change things. But the thing that's lived the longest is not the documentaries, but the music video that um, um, David Broza and um, Sabrine put together. And just to get you started on this, I want to show you the power of bringing people together, the power of music, the power of lyricism. And in there, there may even be some scenes from the documentaries of which I'm also very proud. So I'm just going to start with the music video. Here we go. Oh, oh, oh. 
so um, we, when John and I lived in Jerusalem, we opened an office there. We had an office in Jordan before that, and we moved the office to the place that we felt was the most important. And that office continues, and uh, we have a number of uh, different programs and projects that we run at any one time, um, often over a long period of time as well. And I want to talk to you about one of them, which is uh, a program bringing together young emerging leaders We've uh, teamed up with Outward Bound, you, you know Outward Bound, um, and we've teamed up with them to, this last year, take six Israeli and six Palestinian young Israeli leaders, emerging leaders, through a nine-month leadership program, starting off with a nine-day uh, canoe trip down the Rio Grande River in Texas, and then moving on to retreats in, in, in the Middle East and, uh, and some other activities. And I want to tell you a little bit about what happened, because the stories of the, the point of this is that both the people who are involved will learn um, and develop profound leadership skills from a common ground perspective to be able to go back into their communities with a sense of each other. Um, and of course, the, 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 the blending and bonding of the two sides is an investment in the future. On the, uh, the, on this last um, round of it, we had um, a Palestinian who was hesitant about joining. He said, um, I want the leadership skills, but I'm not sure if I can work with Israelis. But he came anyway. But he said, I will never share a tent with an Israeli. Well, on the third night, he shared a tent with an Israeli. On the fourth day, he shared a canoe with an Israeli. On the fifth night, as they sat around the campfire, he said very quietly, you know, I've never understood religious Jews before. I've always thought they were bad people, but now I know I was wrong. And I've made a good friend with this Israeli Jew that I'm sharing this tent in this canoe with. But he still, there was this edge to him. He came from a, a harsh environment and he, he couldn't really commit into the group. And so he would always be a little bit outside, even though it was better than when he'd started. And on our last retreat in the mountains of Turkey in the wilderness, um, I, I was there for this one in July, on the last morning of the last retreat, we're now in month eight, we were telling stories that went very deep you know, they'd been spiraling deeper and deeper over the months. And something in him shifted. And that afternoon he cried. And people gathered round him. And that evening, as we sat together under the stars for our final, final moments together, uh, he said, I've been such an idiot. Anything is possible. And this is rather like the, the sort of prodigal son or daughter, you know, the most difficult one to bring in, you rejoice with. Well, I mean, we all just were in absolute tears. I, let me tell you something. It's hard enough for anybody to say, I've been an idiot. It's really hard, I believe, for a man to say that. And it's really hard for a Middle Easterner to say that, and a Middle Eastern man. So this was huge. I'm a halfway <laughs> This was huge. I have been such an idiot. And there was, another, uh, there was another Palestinian who um, had come, who had never really met Israelis other than at checkpoints. He came from a village in the West Bank 
which was also a village where he told the group a number of people had come from who had attacked Israelis, and in fact even suicide bombers had come, had come from there. And he was a, a lovely, lovely being, let me call him um, Sami. And Sami was a wonderful, warm, funny person. And on about the fifth or sixth evening, he too began to cry. And he said, my tears are for the pain I feel knowing that the community I come from has hurt so many Israelis. And he said, here I am with you and it, it just feels so, so wrong to me. And as he, as he spoke and told the stories of the people he knew, let me call him David, one of the Israelis went white. And he said, when he and his sister were driving together, they were attacked badly. They were both seriously wounded, but they survived. And he said, listening to Sami, the story he tells about the suicide bomber who blew up a particular cafe, he said, one of my friends was blown up in that cafe. And he said, that's now why I do the work I do for the victims of violence. And that night was Friday night. And so there was a reading of the scriptures. Um, David read, read from the scriptures. And so Sami brought out the Quran and he read from the Quran. And Sami said, Muhammad has told us to build castles around the world. He said this week, I have built six Israeli castles. They are now my castles. And so this is the possibility when people come together and meet each other in their hearts and spend time and get to know each other in our common humanity and our common spirituality. This is what much of our work is about. You know, there's the story of the, the one woman, um, let me call her Aviva, who came into this with um, protest dreadlocks. I mean, really long, very unusual in Israeli society. And afterwards cut them off because she no longer felt that deep anger that had fired her for so long. And the stories go on and on and on. So what I'd like to do is just show you um, a little bit from that uh, canoe trip that they did in the beginning. It's just a, a couple of minutes of slides put together. Now you're going to recognize the music, which is the music from the song you just heard. And John's comment when he heard that we put it together that way was, oh my goodness, our song has become elevator music. <laughs> and it's true. We love the music so much and we're recycling it and reusing it and we put it as background because we thought the slideshow without the music wouldn't be so good. So. Right, and in the end we're going to show you this year's song, which is not that this is last year's elevator music, we have something we're current. <laughs> anyway, let's move ahead.
going to finish the Middle East portion with two personal stories of two women. And the first story was on a, a, a one day, um, on a Thursday, in Jerusalem, I was going to visit a friend. And I went out of our house to get a taxi, and as I got into the taxi, the sirens went off, and this meant that, the, that there'd been a suicide bombing. It was the familiar, because we were there at this very, very tense time when there were a lot of suicide bombings in Jerusalem. And uh, it meant that everything was going to come to a standstill. And somehow my taxi got through the traffic and got me to my friend, and I arrived crying and shaking because I could never get used to this, even though it happened so often, and it still makes me cry and shake. Um, and I arrived with her, and I said to her, I'm crying and shaking, not just for, I'm crying and shaking for both the people who've been killed and the people they've left behind who now go into so much grief and loss. And also for the young man who had so much despair in his being that he blew himself up and did this. And so we spent our time together and now fast forward to the Sunday following, not three days later, but the following week, so 10 days on. And there's another suicide bombing. And the Monday, my phone rings. And a stranger on the phone says to me, is that Susan? And Elat, my friend, Elat has asked me to call you. Her son, Benjamin, was killed yesterday in that bus bomb. So I went straight to her house. And as I went in, and everybody was there sitting Shiva, the room was full of people with her. But as I went up to her and we hugged each other, her words to me were, I remember what you said. And in her moment of absolute grief, having just buried her beloved son, she was remembering the Palestinian and remembering what we had talked about before. And it's, it's people like Elat and the person Samir I'm going to tell you about, who inspire me and keep uh, this work so alive because of the courage and the willingness to rise above what's happening on that daily level. Samir was born the same year as me, 1949, and um, she had been born, her parents were, she was a Palestinian, and her parents had fled in the 1948 war, and so she was born in a refugee camp. And she and I bonded on our age and on all sorts of, we liked the same food, and we had lots of things in common. And after we got to know each other a bit, she told me a story. And she said that growing up in the refugee camp, she was always told about the house in Jaffa that they'd left behind, and how this house had an orange tree in the garden, and Clematis climbing over the arch of the doorway, and there was a view of the sea. And she said finally in the Oslo years of the 1990s, she was able for the first time to go back to see the house in Jaffa. And when she got there, there were, of course, other people living there. There was no orange tree, there was no clematis, it was just a run-down old house. It had nothing to do with the story that she'd spent more than 40 years living. And in that moment, she realized that stories are just stories, and that she made the decision to become a peacemaker. And that's how we met, because that's my world, and that became her world. And she lives in Ramallah, and whenever I'm in Jerusalem, we'll be there in a couple of months, I go to visit Samir and we, we talk and we sit together and, and, and we, we just talk about all the things that need to happen that we want to happen. And I just get inspiration again and again. She's a very high-level woman. She was in a very high-level position in the Palestinian Authority. And um, she, 
is for me, again, Elatsen and Samir for me, are symbols of what's possible in our world. And this is where the hope comes from. As John said, our work is about, is about bringing hope. Well, the people we work with bring us hope too. Our work is also to take those stories which are hugely personal, I mean, you hear it from Susan, and to get them out to millions of people. Because though it's wonderful that Susan has these epiphanies and she can share them with, with 50 people here, what we want to do is transform the world, and that means getting them out to tens of millions and hundreds of millions of folks. So we tend to try to hold up a magnifying glass or some media glass or something to get them out there much wider. And next, we're going to take you to the country of Burundi in Africa, where, which is right next door to, um, uh, Rwanda. to Rwanda. Thank you, that's advancing age. Uh, Rwanda is right next door to Burundi, where there was an awful genocide um, about six, 15 years ago. And um, when that genocide happened, um, it, was seen, it was thought that Burundi would be next, because Burundi has the same mix of Hutus and Tutsis, the same economic problems, the same overcrowding, the same social conditions, and the same ethnic mix, and uh, some, some pretty serious divisions. And at that point, there were about, oh, I think about 5,000 people dying a month in Burundi in the violence, but it had not yet reached the genocidal side of things, or proportions. And we were asked by a colleague, we were actually challenged by a colleague, or the language of South Orange, New Jersey, I was dared by a colleague who said, if you can't do something about Burundi, what good are you? And I thought about that one. He said, you say you're a peacemaker, right? Eh? Uh, well, get to Burundi. So about a month later, Susan and I were on an airplane to Burundi. Um, it's Everybody in this audience probably shares the, the horror that we share, but we have some experience and some organizational capability of actually doing something about it. So we had an introduction from Kofi Annan, who was then the uh, Undersecretary for Peacebuilding in the UN, and we didn't go as people just only do-gooders. We were do-gooders. We did have the goodwill, but we were able to go also as professionals. And we went to Burundi and we set up a program in Burundi um, of um, reconciliation, of bringing people together. Susan talked about it in terms of societal healing. We did a lot of societal healing. We started a radio studio which had Hutu journalists and Tutsi journalists doing at the peak about 15 hours a week of original radio program. The idea was to bring people together, to have unvarnished news on both sides, that both sides would see. We did a lot of soap opera. Soap opera was the best way to communicate about a Hutu family and a Tutsi family, and they had problems, and their kids had problems, and you know there was violence all around them, and the kids couldn't go to school, and, and at the end of every 20-minute episodes, uh, they would drink beer together if you're going to make peace in Burundi the way you actually physically do it as you drink beer with your enemy. So pretty much every episode ended with a beer drinking episode, mm -hmm. which wasn't an, a praise of alcoholism. It was a praise of how you do conflict resolution, or how they thought in that country. And we did, I believe, about 875 episodes of 
this show, which was called Our Neighbors Ourselves, and it, um, and it became very popular, and it started to define in the country national archetypes. And people would say something like, oh, you're talking like Susan, and Susan was a character in our soap opera. Um, and there was a corrupt character, and that person was, re if you, I think his name was Fred, Fred Olique, and if you wanted to tell somebody that they were corrupt, you would say, you're like Frederic. And we were creating archetypes here, and it had a big impact on changing the way people looked at questions like negotiation, reconciliation. We do a lot of outside evaluation to make sure we're really making a difference. And in Burundi, they found that we were able to change the political vocabulary. So I'm going to show you something from a session that Susan was part of, it was, and it was chronicled on a PBS documentary, which makes it a lot easier to show it to you. And you'll get the idea. It was a reconciliation meeting. And just think we were doing about, a, I think we did in thousands of these kinds of meetings. And then we would put them on the radio and put the stories on the radio, and we would communicate that way. So we move ahead, and here it goes to Burundi. The pain of being in a violent conflict is so great that it shuts 
people down from their own humanity, let alone anybody else's. The telling of the story connects us each with what happened. It brings it out and it allows for healing to take place. This was one of the very strong features of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So the idea for Rindy is elsewhere was to do a multi-pronged kind of, take a multi-pronged approach, in other words, to do lots of different things which had the same impact, but which were coming in from all over the society. I said the radio, the women, the reconciliation meetings, and the theory behind this is that if you do a lot of things at the same time, some may have an impact, and that there is a, an, an effect where the, the, sum, the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. So we don't believe that doing a work, one workshop or one training really in the long run accomplishes nearly as much as doing a lot of this stuff. And that's part of our theory of change. So I'm gonna show you one of our, let us say, lighter ways that we worked in Burundi. Um, you probably, looking out at this room where not everybody is too much older than I am or too much younger, um, you might remember Bob Marley, the, um, the reggae guy. Well, his son, Ziggy Marley, is very popular uh, still in Central Africa. The connections between Rastafarians and Central Africans, I don't think I'm getting into that, but there is a profound connection there. And so we went to Ziggy Marley and asked him to do public service announcements, PSAs for peace in Burundi because he was somebody who was listened to. Well, we, did mo we do mostly radio. We do only radio in Burundi. It's a country that has about 200 television sets. But radio is, reaches about 90, 95% of the population. It's very popular. So Ziggy did radio um, PSAs for us, which were in favor of peace. But Burundi is one of the more mistrustful countries in the world, and some naysayers were saying, how do we really know it's Ziggy Marley? Uh, it, it sounds like Ziggy Marley, but it may be a very good Ziggy Marley imitator. And so we went back to Ziggy, and we explained the problem to him, and he agreed to make some TV PSAs for us. And they were shown on television, and although there are very few TV sets in the country, everyone heard it really was Ziggy Marley. So I'm going to show you a Ziggy Marley PSA, which I'm rather proud of. Greetings, I'm Ziggy Marley, African musician. I love peace, I love Burundi and Africa. I love life. I'd like to thank you all who saved lives. You honored humanity. You are pillars of peace. We are deed inspire the rest of the world. One love. Okay. So that was early on in our media production days. But we, and we, as I mentioned to you before, we've done a, we're doing a lot of radio soap opera. And we've gotten more sophisticated. One advantage of getting older, which I'm indicate I can talk to you directly from personal experience of, is you learn something every year or so. 
uh, you know, not every moment of every day, but every year there are two or three big learnings. And one thing that we learned in the last, oh, half a dozen years is that in cultures where there is television, television communicates very strongly, big time learning, you know, like everybody at any university or TV network could have told you that one, but we learned it and we learned how to do TV soap opera. And we came to put together our biggest project, consequently, which is going on right now. And um, it came as a result of, I have an open door um, policy at the organization, and we always have lots of interns running around, you know, people who come for the summer or for a semester, and they're great. And they infuse energy and they're cheap labor, and, you know, we like them a lot. And they do good things for the organization. It helps us not go stale. So about three years ago, uh, one of these interns um, came into my office at the time it was the build-up to the World Cup in soccer, uh, which is the biggest sporting event in the world. And he asked me, what is Search doing, Search for Common Ground? What are you doing about the World Cup? What are you doing to take advantage of it? And I looked stupid and said, well, nothing, actually. And he said, don't you think you should? It's the biggest sporting event in the world. And he was absolutely right. I mean, I just hadn't seen it. So. By the time we finished our conversation, I'd come up with the idea of doing a television drama, soap opera, about the world, about a football team, a soccer team, the world calls it football, about a soccer team that had playing on it um, people of different ethnic groups, different religions, different regional economic, social things, diverse people. And that the, the idea was that if a team like this if they didn't cooperate and play together, they wouldn't score goals. Very simple metaphor, core metaphor. And then I saw it would work in every country of the world, except the United States, because <laughs> we don't play. You know, you could do it here with a football team, I mean, an American football team. So I'm not sure you could do it with the New York Giants. Um, but the fact is, we saw it, it's something that could be done in any country in the world. You might have to change the, the composition of the team. So we put together a series of TV and radio programs called The Team. In French-speaking countries, it's called L'Equipe. It's also called that in Portuguese, uh, though it's for different pronunciation. And we uh, got a grant from the British government, the UK government, to pay for doing it in 10 countries. And so we're now, I've gone from the intern coming in and telling me how I was stupidly avoiding working in the World Cup into be doing soap opera in 10 different countries about football and soccer. Except we just decided to do it in Pakistan and we're going to use cricket. Because in Pakistan, cricket is the big sport. It doesn't matter. It just needs to be a team sport. It wouldn't work for tennis, for example, I think, because they don't have to play together. Um, so I'm going to show you a little bit of the team from Kenya. But it's also in French from Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast. We're in production right now in Morocco. We're in production in um, Congo. Congo, DRC. Oh, um, so I had envisioned, I mean, my, my limited vision of this was that it would be boys playing soccer. Well, our local, we, only, we don't try to write this stuff from the United States. You can't write it from Washington or Hollywood. It needs to be locally based. And in each country, we have local writers who we may train in common ground writing, but they do all the writing. Well, our Kenyan writers came up with the notion 
that we should have boys and girls playing on the same team. Um, and that there's some of that in the world. And we thought that that was a great idea. It wasn't my idea, but it was a great idea. And it came from our local partners, and we thought it was fabulous. So now, not only are we doing it with boys and girls, and the one you're going to see has boys and girls, but in DRC, which is the Congo, we're doing only girls, <laughs> which may go too far the other direction. But what we're trying to do is to show gender differences, ethnic differences, and show how to transcend them. So here from Kenya is, uh, I think, about four or five minutes of the team. And in Kenya, we work in the language that they use. They speak English, which is sometimes difficult to understand for if you're not born there. And so we've subtitled the English. There's also people speaking in Swahili, and they go back and forth. That's how they talk. They kind of mix the two, though they teach English in the schools and everything. So the Swahili is subtitled, as is the English. When we show it in Kenya, only the, the, the Swahili is subtitled. Okay. Excuse me. You're the captain. Show me that you deserve that place, all right? Yes, coach. Let us go out there, play as a team, think as a team, work as a team. Can't play football like you. <laughs> That's very nice of you. But even I had to go to school just like you. You mean at the IDP camp? Yes, at the IDP camp. And what does that mean? It means people who have been sent away from their homes. Are you sure this is your right way home? What did you say, Mommy? Lizzie, did I say anything wrong? Mommy, I you may ask Coach. Where is her mother? The trust that Lulu has in you made me choose someone I can trust as the captain. But I'm not from there. I'm from the other side of the country. You come from the same tribe as the people who killed my wife. Na mbona ukuniambia kuwa Johari ni wa ile kabila nyingine? Sijui utafanyaje lakini mimi sitaki Lulu karibu na Johari. Lakini pia mimi sitaki Lulu awe na chuki moyoni. Sivyo kijana. Hivi. Watu wa huko ukiwapa cheo kama cha captain. Najua kesho watataka president. According to her, she thinks that you represent and remind us of the tragedy we went through. We argue a lot about it. I'm happy all that is, is over now. I'm glad it's over too. Tutamuunia na mpaka lini. Mpaka? 
mpaka hao watu watuwezi kama kuwakubali wewe ni mdogo sana kuelewa kile kinaendelea Clearly what we've done is string together some pieces. It's, that's not how it goes out, but to try and make the story so you can get a sense of it. Quite hard to do with a soap opera. We're, we've got two more pieces of video to show you. And we're now going to take you to one of the key issues of our world, Muslim-Western relations. We work a great deal in this area. And one of the projects that we've had has been to make a film about an exchange of Americans and Muslims. And so we took two Americans, a cowboy from Alabama and a talk show host from Atlanta, Georgia, to Cairo, where they met up with a talk show host from Cairo and a horse and camel man, trader, who was the equivalent there. And we've got a trailer for this, which we would like to show you. We made this in, in co-production with an Egyptian partner. And uh, so here we are, the trailer for The Bridge. This showed on the Hallmark Channel, and we're trying to make it into a whole series at this point. This is the opportunity of a lifetime right here. This is something very few people where I'm from I ever get to see. I am just trying to show my friend around. She's visiting from Cairo, Egypt. You're the first Muslim I've ever met, and it's my friend. Let's talk to Shabazz. Hey, Shabazz, you're talking with Spirit. Hello. Hey, how you doing, sister? I'm great. How are you? I think we just come from broken homes. I mean, we're not being raised like our old Egyptian ancestors. Well, you know, it's so funny that you should mention Egypt. That is exactly where I'm headed. It's such a different, different culture over there. And they don't make a display. Before you come here, mm -hmm. did you tell your audience about your visit? Oh, yes, absolutely. And they were excited. They were more excited than I was. And there were so many things that they wanted to know. So many things. Yes. And the minds of uh, a lot of my listeners, they wanted to talk about relationships yes. and what is happening with relationships in the Middle East. It's a very bumpy road right now, but 
Uh, it looks like we're here at the yeah. ranch. Wow. Wow. <laughs> the pyramids are right there. Hi, how are y'all? Good, and you? Just fine. Mike? Yes. Mahmoud. Mike Blaze, you're my yeah. Egyptian cowboy, huh? <laughs> you're Egyptian cowboy. Great how are you? to see you. How did you start ranching and doing this for a living? I love horses, that's family business. So how many horses do you have? Now I have 20. 20? Yeah. This is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, never uh, would I ever have dreamed that I was going to wake up one morning and be looking at this. You say, yeah! You gotta do better than that. Let's have a tea. Okay. Do you drink? Yeah. Beers and stuff like yeah. this? Yeah. Do you? Me, no. And I don't have in my place. I don't allow it in my place because of praying and so. We don't allow alcohol in my place. What's your religion? Uh, Muslim. Yes, Muslim. Well, you're the first Muslim I've ever met and had as my friend. Yeah, first Muslim? Yeah. This is something very few people where I'm from will ever get to see. Well, McMood, this has really been something else uh, once again. I hope you enjoyed this, Mike. Very much so. Thank you very much. You can see that our work is full of laughter and crying and everything in between. It's thoroughly human. We want to close with another music video. Um, this is a, a, a music video that came out of the uh, 2007 Nobel Peace Prize ceremony where Melissa Etheridge was playing um, uh, for Al Gore and, and Salman Ahmed, who is a Pakistani rock star. He's the biggest deal in Pakistan and parts of, the, of Asia. Uh, and he was playing there too. And the two of them met and they bonded and they created a song together, a song for peace, which they called Ring the Bells. And they um, talked to us about the song um, and we went to a, a Hollywood production company and we ended up having a music video made from the song um, and dedicated to Search for Common Ground and the idea that the Hollywood production company, Participant Productions, has is they want this to go viral, so we're just waiting to see. But let's see Ring the Bells with Melissa and Salman.
I want to quote the words of one of our Common Ground awardees, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who said, an enemy is a friend waiting to be made. Every day, our 400 colleagues at Search for Common Ground around the world get up to make friends with enemies and to bring whole communities into making friends with their enemies. There's a Cherokee proverb that says something like this, the grandfather is sitting with the children around the fire and he says, I have two wolves within me. I have the one wolf which has got hatred and meanness and pettiness within him. And I have another wolf which has love and connection and trust within. And the children look at the grandfather and they say, but grandfather, which wolf wins this war? And grandfather thinks for a moment, and grandfather says, whichever one I feed. And so we know that in our work, what we're trying to do and what we're setting out to do with our colleagues and with our broader community of thousands of people and millions that we reach through our media, is to make friends of our enemies, to help communities do that, and to feed that within us, which is goodness, and love and connection, all the things that you are here today to consider, to be with. And that's the spirit, that's the spirit of who we are and what we bring and we do our best. And we couldn't do this without the partnership, the love and connection to so many people, people like you in this room today. Because we are just a little piece of that. We have the privilege and honor to do this work. And so thank you for the privilege and honor of having us here today and welcoming us here today. We're finishing this piece now, and I think there may be time for one or two questions. Let me just say, uh, Daniel comes around with a microphone because we record these meetings for our coworkers, so wait for him to find you. And um, feel free to raise any points or make any comments you want with John and Susan. Thank you. I'm thinking that there will be many people in the future from today on. And part of the problem might be getting the monies in order to do this work. 
And I just wondered what ideas you have and how you've supported yourselves. You're absolutely right. It's, this is amassing the, the treasure, the resources to do this kind of work is a continuing challenge, which uh, I do a lot, I spend a lot of my time doing. And we get our funding from governments, European governments support us a lot. We get some funding from the U.S. government. And we're so glad to know that you're doing what you're doing. And it did remind me of a little story of my own that I had this last January when I was unfortunately forced into a surgery situation and I live a long way from the hospital, so I called a car service. And they showed up very nice and I got all settled in. The driver was very nice. And then he said to me right out of the clear blue sky, he said, what do you think about the Israeli-Palestinian situation? And I said, well, I said, you know, if I were an Israeli and had seen my children killed off by Palestinians, I guess I'd hate the Palestinians. And if I were a Palestinian and had seen all those rockets coming from Israel, I think I'd be pretty upset with the Israelis. And I said, you know, at one time, I've forgotten exactly where it was on the border, but they had found that if they did commerce together and really had a good going business going between both sides, but even when the fanatical people came and said, you can't do this, we won't allow you to do this, they went, oh, get lost. We don't need people like you around. We have this great business going. And I said, I think that's what we need to go towards. And about then we got to the hospital and he he said, thank you. He said, this has been the most wonderful trip I've ever had. And I have learned so much from you that I want to share with my friends. And I said, that's great. And as I got out the door, I said, where are you from? Because I knew he wasn't from the United States. I said, where are you from? And he said, I'm an Israeli. That's a wonderful story. Thank you so much. And you're absolutely right. Shared um, commerce, um, shared activity is one of the key mechanisms for knitting our world together. That's wonderful. Thank you. Terrific. Very inspiring. And thank God you're here. But on another another way, even when you try and put people of goodwill together, there's a thing called trust. It's so fragile. How do you promote trust? Do you mean how do we promote trust between people or how do we promote trust between us and other people or both? Uh, I think you've established your credibility. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the funding support you right. have. So I think there's some trust that you're doing what you're doing. What rapidly can evaporate is trust between people that have a heritage of distrust. Well, this is an absolutely key part of the work, and, and one piece of it comes from uh, the first bit, which is being an established, trusted organization, actually brings trust into the room. It, it, you know, or into the place that, that you're in. In South, Af I was very involved in South Africa's transition from apartheid to democracy. And during those years, uh, when I was working as a peacemaker and peace builder, and I was as a white South African working with white and black South Africans, uh, trust was essential. And I think what I learned then um, was that trust comes from saying you'll do it, doing what you say you'll do, from showing up, from being consistent. And so what we do is we create uh, situations where those kinds of qualities 
are available and are, are, are the foundation of what's happening. So if we're working, as in that we've been talking about Palestinians and Israelis, we've been convening Palestinians and Israelis for um, 15 years. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's a, almost an acceptance that when people will come together in, in this kind of a, uh, um, in this kind of, in this way, that it's a place to just breathe more deeply. The main thing, though, is that people get to know each other. And so what you want to do in this work is to very quickly have people get into their hearts and move away from the positions, the ideologies, the politics, the group, and factionalism that divides us. Because we, we're divided by ideas to a large extent. In our hearts, we're all one. And so the, the way that we do our work is always to get people as quickly as possible into their hearts, whether it's through the, uh, the, the, the radio and television soap operas and other media mechanisms, whether it's through the physical bringing people together, uh, however it may be, uh, we, we focus on our common humanity. And you, you, know, you have to start with people connecting with their own humanity and then they can connect with another's humanity. So there's so many layers to it. There were just too many ways in for me there. There's so many layers to trust. And holding the space of a room um, as a facilitator, as a mediator, um, is a key piece of that. So you know, our network of 400 people who work for us, our network, our staff, their job in, in many cases is to hold that space, whether it's within a country or within a room. So we work hard at it. Well, thank you so much, uh, Susan and John, for this wonderful presentation. I think it really, it's touched the hearts of all of us, hasn't it? Especially that comment you made about the um, Cherokee? Cherokee, that we each have two wolves in us. I've heard that comment before, and we decide which one we're going to feed. That speaks directly to the theme of this afternoon, doesn't it? The time of decision is not only for President Obama and his advisors and all the world leaders, it's a time of decision for every one of us, one by one, to decide where we want to align our energies, where we want to direct our thoughts. And we'll pick up the theme after a break for meditation and tea with Rick Ulfick, who's very um, uh, experienced in grassroots efforts. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Oh, what a great audience. Let's dim the lights for this next one. Nope, too much. Ah, there it is. Got to get things just right. Like Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Tell us what you want to pay and we help you find coverage options that fit your budget. And now, the mood is right. Wait, the lights are back on again. Trudy, can you? And now it's completely dark. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Amazon has everything for back to school. Zebra lunchbox? Check. Cool Adidas gear like t-shirts, shoes, and backpacks? Check. Triceratops folders and pencils? Check. Lasercat t-shirts? Check. Get your back to school shopping done now at Amazon.com slash back to school and enjoy free shipping on millions of items. No need to leave your home or hassle with crowds. Amazon.com. No better place to get everything back to school from A to Z.